The words I'd like to direct your attention to this afternoon are found in the book of Mark, chapter 6, and we will be reading verses 7 through 13. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Mark, chapter 6, I'll begin reading at verse 7. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Please pray with me. Lord, even as we read that, uh, we, we recognize that Though we take such great delight in singing your praises and delighting in your work, Lord, we recognize that you've also called us to take part in your work. As we read about you sending out the apostles, though they were not mighty, nor amazing, nor brilliant men, they were, they were simple men, and yet you called them to serve with you in the greatest work that this world has known, in the establishment of your kingdom. And that you've extended that invitation to us also later on in Matthew. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to increase our understanding in what you were calling the apostles to do in this text, and that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would clarify your will for us through your word, that you would feed our souls, that you would strengthen us, convict us where necessary. We ask for mercy, but we also ask that you would admonish us where we need to be admonished and lead us and guide us so that we might be a church and be people that are fully pleasing to you in all that we do. So we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So if somebody were to ask you what a, a, a good model of a, a church was or of some sort of ministry, what, what would you direct them to? What does a God-honoring ministry really look like? So what are, what are model churches today or churches throughout history that you would point people to as a model to follow? Or what people are there who would be good examples of what good ministers look like? The Bible encourages us to find models for ministry. Uh, Paul himself uh, told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me, even as I am of Christ. He said something similar to the Philippians in Philippians 3.7. He said, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. So he's calling them to follow the example that even he's given. He says something similar to Timothy when he 
tells Timothy that the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will then be able to teach others also. So you have this example being passed on both in teaching as well as life. We read earlier that the Thessalonians also imitated Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. They became imitators of him. And the text before us also demonstrates that Jesus wanted the 12 apostles to model their ministry after his own. And you might recall that Jesus had been previously rejected by his own town. We, we looked at that in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And this theme of rejection actually carries through in this chapter. It's, it's seen in, the, in, the, in this passage before us, but it also extends to the passage that follows in the execution of John the Baptist. And actually, this section is one of those Mark and sandwiches, where Mark begins by telling a story, and then it's interrupted, and then he picks up the story again. You'll notice that he gives, Jesus gives these instructions to the apostles. He sends them out. And then, after they're sent out, there's this interruption about this seemingly random story of John the Baptist. And at the end of that story, he picks up with the apostles again and says that they returned. And what's going on there, what what Mark is trying to convey is the ministry of the apostles is going to be similar to that of John the Baptist. They are one in the same, uh, they have one in the same purpose. And so the disciples really are to, are, are to model their ministry both on Jesus and what Jesus has done, but also on John the Baptist. And so for clarity's sake, I've paraphrased Jesus' instructions to the disciples in, with four instructions as an outline for today's sermon. That is, they are to go in pairs and with authority. They are to pack lightly. They need to expect rejection. And they are to do what Jesus has done already. Let's look at the first point in verse 7. He tells them to go in pairs and with authority. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now notice that the text says that he began to send them. This marks the beginning of the apostles' ministry. Jesus, there's a transition happening. Up till now in the book of Mark, it's only been Jesus that's, that's been doing any sort of ministry. The, the apostles have just followed him. And now he is sending them out. They're going to continue his ministry of preaching, of healing, and of casting out demons. And very interestingly, the text notes that he sent them out in pairs. Two by two. Many commentators point out the wisdom of sending out people two by two. They could encourage each other by going in in pairs. They can do twice the work. They can hold each other accountable. One could pray while the other is preaching. So there's a lot of wisdom. And and this pattern has been followed throughout history by many mission agencies and ministries that have been begun. And all of these things are are true and good, but I think there's something a little bit more to this and why he uses the term two by two. The Greek word, it's actually two words, it's it's duo duo. In the Greek it just simply says he sent them out two two. And there's 
There's only two other places in the Bible where that phrase is used. The first is, um, well, one, one place is actually in Luke 10.1 when Jesus sends out the 70 disciples to do the very same thing that they're doing here, to preach. The other time he sends them out two by two, or where something happens two by two, is actually in the book of Genesis, chapter 6 and 7. And that's when God told Noah to gather two of every kind of animal in order to repopulate the earth after the flood. That's really, and so in the, in the, so in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, the Septuagint, these are the only times this phrase, duo-duo, is ever used. I think that's remarkable. What's also interesting is that in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, we're told that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. That is, before the flood came, he was calling men and women to repent of their sins. But they didn't listen until the judgment came upon them. And the disciples' ministry, you'll note, is going to be very similar. They're going forth, like John the Baptist also, and proclaiming repentance. Because judgment is coming. And if people don't heed, they too will fall under the judgment of God. And so this imagery of sending the disciples out two by two suggests two things. First of all, the disciples are falling in line with the ministry of Noah and John the Baptist and Jesus in their proclamation of repentance because of coming judgment. But secondly, it notes that the Lord is beginning his work of establishing his kingdom that is going to be bringing about new life. So just as after the flood, the waters descended and those animals went forth from the ark down from Mount Ararat to repopulate the earth, to reestablish the earth in a, in, a, in a new creation of senses. The apostles likewise are being sent forth from Jesus to begin establishing a new order, a new creation. They are going to be the ones that are going to be bringing about new life through the proclamation of the kingdom. And, and, the, and what brings about that new life is the word. That's the seed that they sow that the Lord uses to bring about this new life. I think it's also noteworthy that they were given power over unclean spirits. And it notes it immediately after seeing them out two by two. And that's because the judgment that came upon the earth in uh, the days of Noah was brought about because the wickedness had gotten so great because fallen angels had created havoc upon the earth. And so this points on the fact that they're carrying on this ministry of, of undoing the work of demons, similar to what God did with the flood. God cleansed the world of their corruption through the flood and started over with Noah and his family. And so Jesus sending the disciples with pairs, casting out demons, is again establishing this new kingdom, this new order upon the earth. And the message they bring is that all who repent will be saved from the coming wrath. Then his next instruction to them is essentially to pack lightly in verses 8 through 10. It says, he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, don't put on two tunics. 
The word instructed actually means to command, to give orders. So Jesus here isn't coaching, he's not teaching. He is like a commander on a battlefield, ready to engage the enemy. He's giving orders so that the mission will be accomplished. And interestingly, his, uh, his orders focus on what the disciples are not supposed to bring on the mission. They take just the bare essentials. And it emphasizes the mission's seriousness. They take only what's necessary. Just as like Marines, when they're sent to a front lines mission, only take just what's necessary in order to get that mission accomplished. And when the mission is finished, then they can go back to their creature comforts. But for the sake of the mission, they strip down to only what's necessary. And so they're told to, to bring just the bare essentials. He mentions there to be nothing but a staff. And I should note here that there's actually some discrepancies between what Mark says as well as with what Matthew and Luke say in the other Gospels. Both Matthew and Luke indicate that Jesus told them not to bring a staff. And then Luke says that Jesus told them not to bring sandals. And I think the best reason or the best explanation for these discrepancies is that really what Jesus is forbidding here is that they're not supposed to take anything extra. It also could indicate that um, Jesus is using a rhetorical expression for traveling light, which is just simply being rendered in different ways by the different gospel writers. And that's clearly the point. Again, they're just simply to fix their focus on the mission at hand. They're not to be worried about creature comforts. They're to focus simply on the mission of proclamation. And actually, even this instruction to stay at just one house fits in with this. This principle of packing simply. Look at verse 10. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Now, his instruction to, to stay at whatever house they're given is, is not because they're supposed to decline any invitation after receiving one. So it's not a prohibition against receiving invitations. The point is that they're to remain content with whatever the Lord provides. So after God provides for them a place to stay, they're not to look for an upgrade. If he provides for them a two-star hotel, they need to be you know, content with the two-star hotel. If he gives them a four-star, great. But to just accept the first place that accepts them. And again, the simplicity of ministry ties into the ministry model of John the Baptist. You might recall what, how, how Jesus describes John's ministry in Luke chapter 7. In fact, go ahead and flip over there. Luke chapter 7 and verse 24. Beginning verse 24, he says, When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. 
See, like John the Baptist, the disciples are going to go out without luxury, simply focusing on this proclamation of repentance for Israel. They're to live the opposite of luxury while they're on mission. John Wycliffe was uh, known as one of the fathers of the Reformation. In fact, he's been described by many historians as the morning star of the Reformation. He was the first to translate the Bible into English. And he also trained up multiple priests and missionaries to go forth throughout England and to proclaim the gospel in truth, in contradiction to what many friars and Roman Catholic priests had been teaching. And the men that he raised up were called Lollards. And Wycliffe sent them out looking at this passage as a model. In fact, he sent them out likewise in pairs with just kind of the bare essentials that they needed to get the gospel out. They were clad in russet gowns and they would preach at friars, they would preach in marketplaces, they would, they would preach in churches. If allowed, they would preach in houses and they would temp, uh, teach simply the, the fundamental truths of Christianity that had been distorted over history. And they, and they preached with zeal and simplicity. And, and, and they had a massive impact. They, they, the law of preaching reformed much of England. And not only that, their ministry spread to the continent as well. And they were the primary inspiration behind John Huss, who was seen as kind of the, the forerunner a hundred years before Martin Luther. And then Martin Luther also got many of his, much of his theology and many of his writings based upon the writings of John Wycliffe and the Lollards. And so their preaching ministry had a reverberating impact that, that really began the Reformation hundreds of years later. A 13th century historian named Irenaeus described the Lollards in this way. They admit of no pride of dress. Riches they don't seek to multiply, but they are content with things just as they are. Always engaged either in working or in learning or in teaching. In fact, one Lollard named Thorpe was captured after their ministry was deemed um, illegal because the Roman church had significant power within England, the Lollard ministry was outlawed, and Thorpe was one of the Lollards who was later executed. And this is what he testified to what Wycliffe taught those men, how those men were to, to engage the pastoral office. By the authority of the word of God and also of many saints and doctors, I have been brought to the conviction that it is the office and duty of every priest faithfully, freely, and truly to preach God's word. Without doubt, it behooves every priest in determining to take orders to do so chiefly with the object of preaching the word of God to the people to the best of his ability. We are accordingly bound by Christ's command and holy example and also by the testimony of his, of his holy apostles and prophets, under heavy penalties to exercise ourselves in such wise as to fulfill this duty of the priesthood to the best of our knowledge and powers. We believe that every priest is commanded by the word of God to make God's will known to the people by faithful labor and to publish it to them in the spirit of love to the best of our ability 
where, when, and to whomsoever we may. And so Wycliffe and the Lollards really were following the example given by Christ to his apostles, as well as the example given by John the Baptist. And so, not only are they to go forth in pairs and with authority, and not only are they to go forth with, uh, sim- in simplicity, packing lightly, the third instruction he gives is that they are to expect rejection. And it's interesting that, that Jesus assumes that people are not going to like the message that, he, that they teach. Because he doesn't say anything about what to do if it's accepted. He only gives instructions for the negative. Look at verse 11. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. If the people they preach to failed to welcome them into their villages or into their homes, or if they rejected their, their message there to take off their shoes and shake the dust off their shoes as a testimony against them. And this would have been a clear act of judgment. And it would have been received as such by the people of Israel. They would have known what is being signified by taking off the shoes and getting the dust off of them. Because this was an act performed by Jews as they were exiting Gentile territory and entering into the promised land again. Because the Jews believed that outside the land of Israel, even the dust was unclean. And that the Jews could be defiled by contact with unclean dust. So they shake off all the dust they can. And if a spot of heathen dust just touched an offering, it would be immediately burned. And if by mischance any heathen dust had been brought into the land... It was believed that it would make at least that portion of land that it touched unclean also. So they were really fastidious about doing this. And so when the disciples shake the dust off their feet, they were proclaiming to that town, to that village, that you people are no different than heathen Gentiles. And you can imagine how well that would go over. But again, they're doing it because they're wanting these people to see that in rejecting this message that was essentially just a call to hold fast to the covenant that Israel had received on Mount Sinai, that if they're going to reject that message and that message of repentance to return to the covenant, they're no different than Gentiles. Because if they're not going to receive God's word and hold fast to it, what makes them think that they have anything to differ? Just because they're children of Abraham doesn't make them Followers of God. Children of God. So if they reject the message, they're already rejecting the covenant. And this would be a way to demonstrate that to them. Jesus says that such an act would serve as a testimony. A familiar word. It's the Greek word marturion, where we get the word martyr. It basically just means to bear witness. It has a forensic quality like an eyewitness testimony in court. And just like today, if, if a person is going to give eyewitness testimony to a crime that they saw, that's going to hold significant sway in a courtroom. And likewise, this act by the apostles, for any who would reject their message, 
is going to hold significant sway in the day of judgment. And it, what it's saying is, it's as if to say, I saw your crime, your unbelief, your rejection, and I will bear witness against you in the day of judgment. So this act is as if to say, I'm standing up and I'm going to be an eyewitness that you rejected the message on the day of judgment. So that they know exactly what's going on. They're not going to have any excuse when the day comes to stand before the Lord. Because the apostles were saying, this is something you can't reject. This is the covenant. You must repent and hold fast to it. But the reality that their message would be rejected is clearly central to Jesus' instructions. And so it's interesting. The apostles were not called to go and change people. They weren't called to manipulate people. They were called to just go forth and proclaim a simple message of repentance. They were just simply to sow the word and let God determine what seed would grow in what soil. So their job was not to go forth like um, public... The word's escaping me. They weren't trying... They were called to go forth and make Jesus look good. I can't remember what job that's called. Public relate. They weren't a public relations experts for Jesus. Thank you. They were called... To just preach this message of repentance. They weren't called to make Christianity look attractive. They weren't called to make ministry seem relevant to whoever they're preaching to. It was simply to go forth in simplicity and tell people the truth. And in fact, if we want, we feel compelled to want to make Christianity look attractive to an unbelieving world. The best way to do that is not to dumb down the message or to conform our standards to the world. The best way to make Christianity look attractive is to lead a crucified life. Demonstrate to unbelievers that this message is so beautiful and so wonderful that you would gladly leave everything. You would gladly lose everything just simply to have the opportunity to proclaim it to people. Help them see that this is the one thing that you live for and that you treasure with all your heart. If you want to make Christianity look amazingly good, you want Jesus to look good to unbelievers, the way to do it is not to conform to the world, but to show that your life has been radically changed. That he truly is now your all in all. If we're convinced that, that, that Jesus loves us because he demonstrated that love by leaving his father's throne above and humbled himself and went to the cross and bled for Adam's race, if that's why we're so convinced of Christ's love, because of what he gave up, Likewise, if we want to show the world how great Christ is, let them see that He is worth losing everything for. And they will see that you don't just preach a philosophy. This message has possessed you. And this man is so precious 
he's worth losing everything for. In fact, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from his joy, emphasis on joy, from his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, that he might obtain it. And so this isn't a call to just morose, uh, aesthetic, ascetic living. Woe is me. Oh, life is so hard. This is a joyful sacrifice. This is, this is I don't mind being persecuted. If this gets to be the result. It's not saying we want to be persecuted, but if it allows for, for people to hear the gospel, bring it on. Because that's how precious this message is. That's how we make Christ look attractive. And the simplicity of the disciples' ministry that we saw earlier really demonstrates that truth. That's why Jesus pointed to John the Baptist. Why does everybody want to go listen to John the Baptist? Because he walks around with rich clothes and lives in a palace? No, because that man believes everything that he preaches and he demonstrates it in the way that he lives. That'll prove that you have a message worth hearing. The fourth instruction he gives them is is to do what I have done. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And so quite simply, we're told their ministry consisted of three things. Preaching, healing, and casting out demons. Well, who else did that? Jesus. It's the very same things we've seen Jesus do time and time again throughout Mark. And so they're really just carrying on the ministry that he's begun. They, they preached that men should repent. This was the message of John the Baptist. We saw that in the very first message on Mark, in Mark 1.4. That's what the Baptist did. It was the message of Jesus in Mark 1.15. They preached the message of repentance. And again, this, this word repentance, it's the word metanao. It's actually a combination of two words, which means after and mind. It basically means to have a change of mind. One repents when they have a change of mind, a change of thinking about a sin. In other words, they recognize the real hideousness, the real vileness of the sin being described. One repents when they recognize that sin is ugly, so they no longer want it. And that's why this word is frequently tied to faith. One who believes what's being said about sin repents. If you really believe what's being said about sin, you believe its ugliness and vileness, you will turn away from it and repent. That's why the apostles went forth preaching. And and, and people ask, well, how could we be saved? In the book of Acts, they said, repent and believe. The two go together. Real belief is demonstrated by repentance. So to help us understand this, Imagine that, that, that I go for a walk with one of my sons, uh, maybe in a park or along the road, and one of my, one of, and my son discovers a bottle that looks like it's filled with Gatorade. And happening to be, he's thirsty, so he wants to try it. Well, I inform my son that that's not Gatorade that's there. That was probably somebody didn't have a chance to make it to a restroom, and that's urine, son. Now, if my son believed me that what was in that bottle was urine, he would not pick it up. He would not open it. In fact, if he had touched it, 
he'd immediately probably want to go wash his hands. And, or he'd want to throw it away so that somebody else would not want to touch it either and, and find out the hard way that it's not Gatorade. And likewise, when, when we call people to repentance, it's essentially helping people understand that what that sin is, is awful. It's ugly. It's hideous. It will destroy you. And so it, it's, it's not it's just simply a message of condemnation. It's helping people see the, the real hideousness of sin and what it is, especially in the eyes of God. It's not hard for most people to see the consequences of sin in the eyes of the world. And that enough, that's enough to make a person repent, I would, I would hope. But really, what we're trying to do is help them understand how God sees that sin. Not just murder and adultery, but just things like pride, covetousness. That if that's what's lurking in our heart, that speaks very much to our understanding of the sufficiency of God and His character. So we're trying to shed light. Is what, what is, how does God look at sin? And that's what they were doing when they're calling people to repent from their, their rebellion to the Mosaic Covenant. Secondly, they were to cast out many demons. Jesus gives them authority over these supernatural beings who are wreaking havoc upon the earth. And we, we saw all the different ways some of these demons had possessed people, doing awful things. And Jesus would come to the town and, and cast them out. It's interesting in Luke chapter 9, which is Luke's account of this, this same, same event in Jesus' ministry, it says that he gave them authority over all demons. And so this authority that he gives them is pervasive. Now, but they, they didn't have the authority to cast out demons until he gave it to them. One, that says a lot about Christ, that he can give other people authority over these magisterial, supernatural beings. What Paul describes as the, 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 the rulers and, he, uh, and powers in the heavenly places. They have authority. They're just humans. They have authority over fallen angels. That's amazing. Jesus gives them that authority. The third thing he has them do is that they, they were to anoint people with oil. Now this is simply common medical practice. Actually, the Apostle James refers to this in James chapter 5, verse 14. The, the elders of the church are called to anoint people with oil. And, 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 and during that time period, there wasn't a lot known about medicine. But one of the common things that you would do is pour oil on somebody to help them heal. We, actually, this is one of the things that the Good Samaritan does for the man that he finds. He pours oil on them. And so this was just common medical practice. Um, one commentator says, olive oil was a common remedial agent of the ancients and was used internally and externally. At a time when healing art was in its infancy and medicines were few, olive oil was a panacea for many ills. Here the disciples are directed to use it in the healing of the sick. So although it's just natural medicine, I think there's a little bit more going on than just simply practicing first aid. What they're doing, and the reason I think that is because the text actually says they healed many people. So I think in their practice of medicine, the Lord is also supernaturally working power to heal these people. So their healing is coming about much like Christ's, and that people are genuinely being healed from whatever afflicted them. 
So again, all three of these ministries of preaching repentance, casting out demons, and anointing people with oil to heal them are evidence that the, that the disciples are just carrying on this ministry of Jesus. They're simply following after him. And of course, we too, today in the, in the 21st century, we're called likewise to follow after Christ. Now, we're not called to do the very same things that the apostles were told to do here. In particular, we're not called to cast out demons. We're not called to heal people supernaturally. The commission, actually, that Jesus gives us, again, is somewhat different. And, and we, we're, we receive that commission in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, a passage you are probably all familiar with. This is the commission that Jesus gives his disciples after he's ascended from the dead. So, uh, in a sense, another kind of, there's a new era in the ministry. Because he has died, he's risen again, and he's sending them forth, not just with a gospel, uh, not just with a message of repentance, but this is a message of repentance and faith in Christ. So it's not just repentance towards the covenant, that's what the apostles were doing in this passage that we looked at today. In Matthew 28, it's proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, because he has risen from the dead and he has paid the penalty of man's sin. Well, if you look at Matthew 28, 20, Beginning in verse 18, that would be better. Jesus says, again, this is our commission, the church's commission today. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and then this great assurance, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So this text tells us what our job is. In a sense, what our application would be in light of what the commission Jesus gave the apostles in Mark 6. Our application would be make disciples. Well, how, is, how do we make disciples? We do it through preaching. Through, through preaching the gospel. That's what's signified by baptism. Baptism was, was kind of the, the New Testament way of signing a card or walking an aisle is one way when one got baptized they were saying i want to commit my life to christ some churches they would they would encourage maybe somebody to write their the name and their name and date in the back of their bible that's the day i gave my life to the lord well the way that the, the early church did it is they got baptized that was a way of identifying with christ i am now going to be a believer so they would preach the gospel people would get baptized they'd get saved well now what so the second thing they would do, besides preaching the gospel and baptism, is they would teach them all that Christ had commanded. In other words, the Bible. So that's how we make disciples. That's our task today. Tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. He has risen from the dead. He has paid the penalty for our sin. And that we can be saved through faith in Him. And then say, you need to obey everything that He's commanded you. You need to repent and follow His commandments, which are given to us in the whole of Scripture. And what we need to recognize is that whatever part we play in this great commission, it's going to be hard. Whatever part we play in fulfilling this great commission, 
whether it's in preaching and baptizing, whether it's in teaching or serving in some other way, it's going to be hard. It's going to require great sacrifice. As we announced uh, this in, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have one of our missionaries join us uh, who's currently serving in Asia with Frontline Missions. Uh, another missionary who was sent out years before by the same agency, Frontline Missions, was once asked by a friend how he could inspire his congregation to want to be stirred up for mission work. How can I help people be stirred up to want to take part in this great commission, to want to, to be a God's hands and feet and mouth to the nations? How can I help my congregation see that this is the most wonderful work that we could ever be engaged in. This is what that missionary said. Let them know the incredible difficulty of leaving houses and lands for the gospel. It's easy to feel the tingly sensations of missionary surrender by listening to a well-crafted, musically powerful missionary DVD in a climate-controlled auditorium, and then hearing an impassioned sermon. But turn off the AC when you preach the sermon. Pump in the smells of body odor and strange food and cigarette smoke. Blast some insipid Balkan or tribal music in the background. Talk about depression and loneliness and pain and smog and threats and fears and danger and discomfort and frustration about the illogical grammar. Talk about there being ten Demases that rip your heart out for every Timothy that is faithful. Talk about pouring out blood, sweat, and tears, and seeing the harvest come in slower than you thought it would. Talk about missionary kids struggling to adjust and forever becoming third culture people neither being culturally American nor Timbuktuan. Missionary sacrifice is overwhelming. This isn't in the fine print. It's plastered all over the New Testament. But we fail to present this side because we don't want to sound like we're bellyaching. War is hell. But also let them know the incredible reward of doing all this for Christ's sake. Take up the joy that was set before Christ at the cross. Talk up eternal treasure. Mention the party throne over the one in a hundred rescued from destruction. Overshadow the immense difficulties of missionary sacrifice by the overwhelming rewards in eternity. Make them jealous for God's glory. And tell them how incredibly amazing it is to see God turn the spiritual light on in a pagan's heart. Let them imagine how tear-jerkingly awesome it is to hear a sinner calling upon the name of the Lord after being convicted by the Holy Spirit through someone as unworthy as them. And even in the absence of such conversions on a large scale, let them know that there is great fulfillment in knowing that amidst the pagan sounds and oppressive darkness, you have been sent as a light, lit by the light, and though no one come, though no one heed, you are there. And they know you're there. And he knows you're there. 
And he is there with you always until it's all over and you go to your final sleep saying, I left it all out there on the field and it was worth it all. Let's pray. Lord, we feel the pains of belly aching over even the loss of some of the most simplest, insignificant comforts. Lord, I pray that you would stir us up with, with sight to see the amazing majesty of being able to engage along with your church in the work of reaching the nations. That we would be a church that doesn't just support missionaries financially, but that we pray about them and that we think about them and that we long for them. Lord, that we would see us as taking part in their work, even as we go about our jobs, as we go into our neighborhoods, as we raise our kids to know and believe and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see that this is what matters in life. That, that serving you and proclaiming your great name and the great message of salvation is worth losing everything for. But for us to do that, Lord, we do need our eyes to be opened even more. That we would truly believe all that your word proclaims about what really matters in life. And so we ask that you do a work within our hearts and make us useful and effective. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.